Let's sing of our Redeemer. Let's praise him now. 
Good morning, everybody. Wow, you all made it with that time change. This is fantastic crowd this morning. Normally, we have the rapture that takes place, uh, but it's good to see your wonderful smiling faces this morning. And if you are visiting with us, we'd love to have a record of your attendance with us. Just fill out a Connect card located in the seat in front of you. Fill it out and turn it into the offering plate as soon as it comes around in just a few minutes. Senior adults, uh, oh, before I get into the announcements, by the way, if there is anybody in here that could spare a tablespoon of uh, Buckley's, please let me know. I, you know, it's not going to affect me taste or smell wise because I don't have it, but I could use some Buckley's right about now. And I understand the only place you can get it is Canada. So I might have to go there this week. And so, or Amazon, I may just go there if it's e easier. But anyway, if they got it, I'll share, I'll take one. I'll pay you for it too. Um, senior adults, this Tuesday, we're going to Rob's barbecue for our uh, senior adult luncheon, our recycled teenage luncheon, I should say. And so if you have not signed up with me yet, please do so that we can make sure we have all the proper transportation needs that we have that we will need of on Wednesday, uh, on Tuesday, sorry. We'll leave the church at 1130, so make sure that you are here. Uh, Wednesday night dinner uh, is Wednesday, 530, followed by our Bible studies. We have a new series going on in the adult Bible study uh, called Christ Christian History Made Simple and uh, or Made Easy, I believe is the actual title. And then we have our youth department talking about Ryan Osler's success. And then our hands-on worship for our children. They're digging into the life of Jesus. And so come out on Wednesday. We've got a place for everybody. And we'd like for you uh, to be a part of our Wednesday night activities. And then uh, a week from Tuesday is our Chick-fil-A night. Followed next Saturday, a week from Saturday for our men's ministry. And then uh, we've got some coming up, coming up special events that's going to be happening. First of all, we are going to have a... Hopefully, by uh, in the in the month of April, May, and June, we are going to have a fish fry and bingo night on the first Friday of those months, uh, and that is to help us. And those will be that'll be from five to seven. We want you to come out and enjoy a great time of fun and fellowship and some food. You know the three F's that all churches seem to have, and uh, we want you to help us with that. Um, you can help us by donating some uh, cards, gift cards that we can give away. We are going to have some cash prizes as well, and it's just going to be a great, great time. I want you to start making your plans now for these first three months um, because we are going to have, uh, we're going to be actually going back to uh, Costa Rica, and we've got to raise some money, and I'll talk to you that in just a second. And then there are some save the dates. You will notice on the left-hand side of your bulletin that yeah, just put the calendar, put it on your calendar. That does. And if we have enough interest, we will do it. It does not mean we are going to do it. It just means put the date on your calendar in case there is enough interest. And the first one is our fall jubilee in Gatlinburg that we take our recycled teenagers to, September 17th to the 21st. Now, the second one is a definite, and that's going to be we're going to have a Bible conference here uh, with Pastor Andrew's uh, seminary Bible teacher, Dr. Jonathan Pennington. A fantastic man, a funny man, and you will not want to make any other plans but to be here for that uh, October 13th, 14th, and 15th. We will give you more details as they come along, but we just want you right now, put it on your calendar, save those dates. And then in the, uh, a year from now, in February, uh, there is a possibility of us going on a uh, all-Southern Gospel singing cruise. That does not mean you're going to form a group or sing. That just means there will be about 30 or more Southern Gospel groups that will be on board the ship doing concerts throughout the entire cruise. And uh, we'll give you more details on that. 
And then the final thing to save the date for is our Costa Rica trip. And from June 4th through the 14th, uh, we'll be back starting our fundraising efforts for individuals. Uh, those of you that had accounts, we'll give you up to date on your personal accounts so that you know how much uh, eventually you will end up having to raise. And so you can begin putting on it. It's going to be a dining room uh, that's going to have three classrooms on it. Beautiful facility in San Jose. We don't have to worry about Zika or anything else that's going to hamper this trip. And uh, we're going to actually, I, I hate to say this, but we're going to be roughing it. Um, we're actually going to have to stay in a hotel this time. Uh, and so, yeah, I know, it's going to have air conditioning. Uh, and after camping out on Friday, my roughing it on camping out is going to be a Days in or a Motel 6. That'll be my roughing it. So after, that, you know. Uh, but looking forward to it. So save those dates. We've got a lot of things happening in our church. We want you to be a part of it, and we hope that you will be a part of it. And as our ushers are making their way down this morning for the, our tithes and offerings, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, it is a joy to be in your house. It's fun to be around your people and see their wonderful, smiling faces. Thank you for this work here at Northwest. We pray that you will continue to bless it. Thank you for the progress we have seen. And God, we continue to give you the honor and glory because it's not what we have done, but what you have done through us. And that goes with our giving. Thank you for these that are giving and sacrificial because without their giving, this work cannot continue. And we thank you that your word and your work here at Northwest will continue. And we pray that it will continue strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
stand now as we have our scripture verses for the year found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Would you recite them along with me, please? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray our Lord's Prayer together now, shall we? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. to shake the stone was rolled away his perfect love could not be overcome now death where is your sting Now death, where is 
Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your all to us. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure.
Amen. Good morning, church. It is, I mean, people say it, but it's so true. It is indeed an honor and a, and a true privilege to be here this morning to, to convey God's word, to speak his truth this morning. And uh, before I do that, I just want to quickly recognize uh, and thank some people. I want to say a special thank you to, to Pastor Andrew and to Pastor Dave for uh, working with my schedule. Um, sometimes my schedule gets a little hectic, and, and so they had some great ideas about how we could work some things out. And I just want to thank them for their flexibility and, uh, and, their, and their friendship. I also want to thank my, um, my wife, who... I don't know, her patience and grace is just amazing. When, you <laughs> when you're trying to prepare a sermon and there are Lego pieces flying across your face, <laughs> just, uh, just her ability to, to, to be with our boys and give me the time I needed. So I just want to say thank you to her and, and also to my parents for their, for their love and support. Well, this morning, before we get started, I'd, I'd like for us to just uh, take a moment and, and just ask, God for his help this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are all-powerful. And God, right now, I just worship you. We lift you up. We lift up your name. God, I pray that you would bless this service now. I pray that you would be with these gathered, that you would block any intrusion, God, that you would open up hearts and minds to receive your word. Be with me, God. Help me not to be an impediment to that pursuit. But in all in all, God, may you be glorified through what is done today. And we ask these things in the blessed name of your son, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who trusts in Christ. Scripture affirms that. Scripture tells us that when we put our faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we will be saved. We have that guarantee. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my voice, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When the Philippian jailer asked what he must do to be saved, Paul replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul again in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 said, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And you know, the Bible is full of, of passages that affirm faith in Christ as a prerequisite for, for being saved, for receiving eternal life, and for becoming a Christian. And indeed, 
It is. But you know, there's a, there's a difference between becoming a Christian and being a Christian. You know, one of the joys that I have here at Northwest is I, I, get, to, I get to teach kids how to play instruments as the band director. And, and it's always interesting when they come in at, the, at, the, at that fourth grade level, they get this new shiny instrument. And I tell them, I say, listen, you, you are now musicians. You guys, welcome. This is awesome. And you can see the joy in their face. And I'm telling you, some of the times when I'm in that class and we're learning to play notes, some of the notes that I hear, I'm pretty sure they're not on the major scale. I'm like, I, I, somehow you're in between the pitches there. I don't know what that is, but, but it, it really is a joy to do that. And, and, they, and, and in one sense, you could say, yeah, you, you're, you're, a, you're a musician. I mean, you, you have the, the instrument. You know, you're in the class, okay, but I, I would certainly say that there's a difference between me saying that they are musicians and, 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 and becoming a musician and being a musician. There's a difference there, and, and the same is true with, with Christianity, with our faith. There's a difference between becoming a Christian and, and, and being a Christian. You know, becoming a Christian is a one-time event which encompasses the call of God through the gospel message. It also encompasses regeneration by which God secretly and sovereignly imparts spiritual life to those called. It entails conversion whereby we willingly repent of sin and put faith in Christ for salvation. There's also justification, which is an instantaneous legal act of God whereby he declares our sins forgiven and that Christ's righteousness is now ours. But there's also the doctrine of adoption, which is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. And what I've just described in the, is the first half of what is known as the Ordus Salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. And these steps happen only once in the life of a believer, and they're not repetitive. This is what becoming a Christian would conceptually look like. And these are actions that, that God sovereignly initiates and and we don't help them to we don't help him to accomplish these actions we don't we don't help god to call us we don't help god to choose us we don't help god to call us we don't help god to regenerate us none of those things are done as we partner with god but the remaining steps in the order of salvation are sanctification perseverance and finally glorification and what i want to talk to you about this morning is is growth sanctification, what it means to be a Christian, and what that looks like. Wayne Grudem defines sanctification as a, as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Sanctification is the only aspect of salvation where we do work with God in order to bring about conformity to Christ, but even that is done in God's grace and by God's grace. Grudem also defines perseverance as meaning that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will. And they will preserve as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. Glorification sees the believer as fully conformed to the image of Christ. And that's a future event. But being a Christian 
being a Christian is a lifelong process. And I think sanctification is the word that best describes this process. But I mention this because far too often believers rely on their first-time profession of faith in Christ as a sufficient means to living a Christ-like existence on this earth as they await eternity. They are caught in what has been described as the gospel gap. Authors Timothy S. Lane and, and Paul David Tripp in their book, How People Change, define this gap as the hole between the then of the past and the then of the future. And the then of the past basically pictures our union with Christ through faith with the benefit of having our sins forgiven. That is a past event. That happened in the past. I'm sure if you could think back to when you were saved, you can remember that. There was a day, perhaps, maybe you don't have the date specifically, but there's an, a time when you can remember coming to a saving knowledge of Christ, if indeed you have. But that's a past event. But the then of the future sees us as free from sin and struggle. But let me go back to the past really quickly. The then of the past also sees us justified. We stand righteous before a holy God because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a past event. The then of the future sees the promise of eternity with the Lord, and as I said, free of sin and struggle. Scripture tells us in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And how beautifully glorious these two realities are. And I don't want to diminish them this morning. The reality that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us in order to make us right with him. And that we will one day spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. Two beautiful, glorious realities. But these two vantages of salvation tend to leave a gap which can be called the here and the now. And I mention this because the tendency is to think that once we've received Christ, the, the gospel somehow now becomes mute in our lives. You know, we've, we've done our part. We've, 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 we've received him. Okay, that, all right, that's it. And now we're just waiting to be taken to glory. But although we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the same gospel that saves us is also meant to sustain and empower us, as well as cause us to grow and bear fruit as we live out our, our, our lives in this body, on this earth. John Frame says it this way. He says our continuing life with God is like its beginning. We are constantly dependent on our Lord for the resources to live obediently. The fact of the matter is Christians were not saved to merely exist quietly in between the time of their initial faith in Christ and the perfection of that faith in eternity. Christians are called to grow in that faith, be transformed by it, and ultimately become conformed to the image of Christ. That's the goal. Again, authors Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp note that the goal is more than a better marriage, 
well-adjusted children, professional success, or freedom from a few nagging sins. They say God's goal is that we actually would become like him. And that's not to say that a better marriage and, and, and well-adjusted children, that those are, are bad things. Those are good things. Those are blessed things. But what God wants from us is, is so much more. He wants us to be like him, conformed to the image of his son. This is exactly why God chose us and predestined us and predestined those who've been elected. Romans 8, 29 tells us that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformity to the likeness of Christ will have its full realization when believers are glorified and receive resurrection bodies on that last day. That will happen. But until that day comes, we must, as Ephesians 4.15 says, grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. If you're a Christian, then you are called to grow in that Christianity, not simply exist in it. 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our very passage of scripture for this year has this in mind when it calls us to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly affection and brotherly affection love. Why? Why should we do this? Verse 8 gives us the answer. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, the question before us this morning then is how do we do this? How do we grow in our salvation? And the answer, we abide in Christ. If you have a copy of God's word, I'd like to invite you to take it and, and meet me in John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 1, verses 1 through 5. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There are three things that I'd like to point out from this, this text this morning. Three observations. And they are... I want us to see the nature of the vine, the nuance of the branches, and the necessity of that vine. 
In this passage of Scripture, this is the seventh and final of the I am statements made by Jesus in John's Gospel. Jesus begins by saying, I am the true vine. And there's the nature. There it is right there. I am the true vine. Jesus is using a familiar technique that he often employed when teaching others. He's speaking here in parabolic form to his disciples. He's speaking in a parable. Jesus is using an earthly example to illustrate a deeper spiritual truth, namely that he was the messianic fulfillment of Old Testament imagery. The disciples would have been familiar with this. They would have, they would have understood this imagery. I mean, after all, on the temple gates of Jerusalem, there was a big vine right there. In Maccabean coinage, in the intertestimonial period, there was a vine on the coins. The disciples would have been familiar with this reference to the vine because the vine was used as an illustration of Israel. Scripture makes this clear in verses like Psalm 80, verse 8, where the psalmist writes, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out nations and planted it. Jeremiah 2.21 says, I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Isaiah 5.1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill and he dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. But in verse 7 of that same text, we see that the Bible says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. Israel was supposed to be the obedient chosen nation to God, his treasured possession, as well as set apart as a holy nation. That was their call. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, And now if you will carefully listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a treasured possession for me out of all peoples. For all the earth is mine, but you, you will belong to me as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. This was, this was Israel's purpose. According to the Faith Life Study Bible, the holy there, that word holy, speaks to being set apart from that which is common or profane. It indicates something devoted to God's presence and specific use. Devoted to God's presence and specific use. And you know what? Israel failed in this regard. They let the surrounding nations influence them, and they turned from God to worship idols, thus bringing God's judgment upon them. And you see this in the form of the captivity that they endured. The Assyrians, and the Babylonians, and the Persians, and all these other nations coming in and, and putting Israel under bondage because of their, their disobedience. But, but here in John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Jesus represents the true Israel in that what Israel was unable to accomplish as a nation he accomplished with complete obedience to his father. When tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus did not give in to that temptation, but was able to withstand them by using the very same words of Scripture that the nation of Israel had. 
Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So where Israel had failed to be God's choice vine and his completely faithful seed, Jesus, the true vine, succeeded in accomplishing the will of the Father to perfection. This is the nature of the vine. This is the vine we're talking about. And what was that will, by the way? Jesus tells us in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus, as the true vine, faithfully and completely fulfilled the will of God, the Father, on Calvary's cross, securing salvation for all those whom the Father gave him. Jesus is the true vine. That's the nature of this vine. It's the true vine. But you know, there are, there are other vines in our life that look attractive and give the impression of helping us to live this Christian life. There are other vines. Think about the vine of legalism. Legalism is the idea that we can earn God's favor through human effort, by what we do. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the one thing, the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And there it is. The same, the same grace that, that, that justifies us is the same grace that, that sanctifies us. We can't get saved by grace through faith and then now try to live out that faith with, with works. Paul is saying, what are you doing? Who, who has bewitched you? Paul is saying this to the Galatian Christians in response to the claims that keeping the law would make them legitimate or mature believers. Really attractive vine. This is what the party of the circumcision, Judaizers, what they were teaching. And Paul sharply responds by saying in Galatians 3.11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous live by faith. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are also sanctified by that same grace. And it's easy to believe that if we just do more, we can please God. I'll just do more. But being a Christian isn't, remember, we're talking about being a Christian. Being a Christian isn't about abiding in procedures and practices and protocols. It's about abiding in a person. J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says, Jesus is the physician to whom we must daily go if we would keep well. He is the manna which you must daily eat and the rock which you must daily drink. His arm is the arm on which you must daily lean as you come up out of the wilderness of this world. You must not only be rooted, but also built up in him. If we, if we try to live a life that is pleasing to God strictly by our works, then we reduce the power of the gospel. We reduce it. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's not even the gospel anymore. Paul, again in Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of, of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There's no, 
If, if, if you could earn God's favor by what you do, then why did Christ go to the cross? He died needlessly then. In other words, if we could achieve righteousness by what we do, then Jesus died for nothing. Please understand that we must live out our faith by what we do. James 2.20 says, faith without works is useless, but our works don't attain God's unmerited favor. They affirm it. They affirm that favor. Jesus, as the true vine, not only secures our right standing before God, but also works in us through the person of the Holy Spirit to enable us to continually remain in right standing with God as we live out our faith through sanctification. True vine. So we don't want to abide in the, in the false vine, in the tempting vine of legalism. That we, if, we, if we do, we can, we can achieve God's, God's favor. But you know, another tempting vine is the, is the vine of emotional experience. Christians sometimes try to gauge their spiritual growth by the magnitude of how emotionally dynamic their spiritual experience is. You know, they're looking for that, that next spiritual high, that feeling. But this is not new. Frederick Schleiermacher, who was considered the father of modern liberalism, held this same view. He actually built his entire theology on it. He grounded his theology on this idea of feeling. He believed that we cannot know God in and of himself, but only as we experience him. But Christians that embrace this view, they go from church to church looking to feel something, looking for another spiritual high. They read their Bibles looking to feel some kind of powerful emotion that confirms that God is actually speaking to and working in them. When that feeling doesn't materialize, they become depressed and wonder if their growth is really happening or if God is really listening, or if he's even there at all. So church, I want to be careful here. I, I, I don't want to paint emotions and our growth in Christ as this cold, gray experience, devoid of any kind of emotion. <laughs> I was, as I was, I was standing here singing, and I, it never happens to me except the days when I have to preach. I, I'm standing there, and we're singing, you know, this song, let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. We're singing forever. We sing hallelujah. The lamb is overcome. And I don't know what it is. The tears just started welling up in my, just welling up in my eyes. And I'm like, what is going on here? And it must be the dust. Maybe it's the dust thing. I don't know what it is. But, but there is, there, emotions are real. They, they, do, they do happen. But we don't want to ground our entire theology, our, our Christianity on a feeling, Right? Again, Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp rightly point out that biblical faith is not stoic. They say, true Christianity is dyed with all the colors of human emotion. But you cannot reduce the gospel to dynamic emotional experiences with God. I love what they say here. As the Holy Spirit indwells us and the word of God impacts us, most of the changes in our hearts and lives take place in the little moments of life. That's when you really see that, 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 those changes. It is tempting to look for emotional confirmation that we are growing in Christ. 
But the truth is, our gauge for faith is not in our emotions, but in how those emotions influence our actions. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 to 20 says, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need. And I like the, the NIV. I'm reading from the, the New American Standard. But the, the NIV says, who sees his brother in need and, and takes pity on him. But here it says, and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. And our verse for the year calls us to add to our faith brotherly affection and to brotherly affection, love. The father's deep love for us is why he sent his son to die for us. As we grow in our Christianity, our progress should not be measured by our emotions, but by our sacrificial love for one another. Jesus, as the true vine, laid down his life for us. This is the vine that we are called to abide in. The second thing I want us to see from this text this morning is the nuance of the branches. And you look at verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So obviously the first nuance here is that Jesus mentions two types of branches. Those that do not bear fruit and those that do bear fruit. The second nuance is found in two responses to these branches. The first is taken away and the second is pruned. On first glance, you might think Jesus is suggesting that salvation is by works. After all, right, branches that don't bear fruit are taken away. Come on, you gotta, you're not working. You might even think that Jesus is also suggesting that salvation can be lost based on the absence of fruit. Neither of these views is correct. I've already addressed the issue of salvation by works in stating that salvation is by grace through faith. But one of the things that we need to do when we come across a passage like this one is compare it to what other verses of Scripture have to say about that matter. Scripture tells us in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them from my hand. I already quoted John 6, 39, where scripture says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. But if that's not enough, 1 John 5, 4 says, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So clearly, we see from Scripture that those who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus will not be lost. But the truth is, a person who is truly united to Christ will bear fruit. Those who do not bear fruit simply affirm that they never were in true union with Christ. As J.C. Ryle points out, there are false Christians as well as true ones. He goes on to say that there are branches in the vine which appear to be joined to the parent stem, but yet bear no fruit. There are men and women who appear to be members of Christ, 
and yet will prove finally to have had no vital union with him. I think Judas Iscariot is a clear example of this. He was with Jesus for three years of ministry. And the disciples couldn't even tell that he was not in Christ. In John 13, 21, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Verse, two, verse 22 says, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know who is he speaking about? Who is he talking to? I mean, here's a guy that's been with Jesus for three years. The disciples can't tell. And it just goes to show how difficult it is to differentiate the wheat from the tares in that way. But what I find even more interesting is that in, in chapter 13, when Jesus is saying this, they all, they all want to know, who, who is it, Lord? Who, who's going who's gonna to betray you? Is it me? Is it me? And Jesus says, the one who I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Right? And after, the, after he did this, Jesus tells him, what you've come to do, do quickly. But the Bible says in verse 28, this is so interesting. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy things that we have need for our feast, or, or else that he should give something to the poor. Like, they, they, they didn't know. They couldn't tell. But Jesus in the parable of the sower and the seed, and the one on whom seed was sown in rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Wayne Grudem, in commenting on this parable, he says that these individuals have an appearance of conversion and they have apparently become Christians because they receive the word with joy, but when difficulty comes, they are nowhere to be found. Their apparent conversion was not genuine and there was no real saving faith in their hearts. Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a lot right there. But church, we must remember that sanctification takes place over the course of a lifetime. And it is not our job to make a final determination on who is saved and who is not saved. All we can do is observe the fruit that a person bears and continue to preach the gospel to all creation. That's what, we, that's what we're called to do. It is helpful to remember that we gain more and more assurance of our faith by continuing in that faith. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, and the Bible makes this clear, right here, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Colossians 1, through 23 says, yet he who has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if 
Indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Those who abide in Christ will continue to the end. They will remain steadfast. They will bear fruit. Because Philippians 1, 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you, to keep you from stumbling and make you stand, in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's what, that's what God does. He keeps us. Church, God is able to keep us and enable us to stand completely blameless before his presence. But I want to say this this morning. Lest you think that I don't believe in the grace of God or that you can lose your salvation, I want to say clearly that as long as there is breath in your lungs, as long as you are physically alive, there is hope. I'm reminded of the parable of the prodigal son. This young man went off and squandered his wealth on wild living. He ends up with nothing and even takes a job feeding pigs. It got so bad that he actually wanted to feed himself with the pig's food. But he comes to himself and returns to his father's house. The Bible says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the God we serve. This is the God that, that, that of grace that we worship. It is, it is not too late. As long as you have breath, as long as you are alive, you can always come back to God. There's never no hope. Hope is here. Scripture promises that. Scripture gives us that assurance. The Bible says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. You know, maybe you're here this morning, and you've moved away from God over the years. You can recall maybe having a saving faith or receiving Christ, but just kind of stepped away. You can't, haven't really seen much fruit in your life. And you hear me say this, and you think, well, psh, Snip, snip, he's getting cut out of the branch. He's, he's, he's done. That's not what I'm saying this morning. What I'm saying this morning is that you can come back. You can always come back as long as you're alive. Maybe you're here and you've never received Jesus as Lord. You can do that today as well. The power of the gospel is that we receive beauty for ashes. We bring the ashes of a broken life. And in return, we receive, the, we receive the beauty of God's grace. That's what I want us to see from this text. Yes, there's a nuance here. And yes, there are some that we can't tell if they're truly saved or not. But you know what? That's not our job. All we can do is, is observe the fruit and continue to preach the gospel. But if you're here this morning and you've been away from God for a while, you can return. The second nuance in this passage involves the pruning of branches that do bear fruit. The Greek word for prune is kathyro, and it literally means to cleanse of filth and impurity. This is, this is not always a pleasant process, but it results in much fruit, more fruit. 
Paul is a perfect example of this. His ministry was one of intense opposition and tribulation. But look at the fruit of his ministry in Scripture. One clear example of this, I was reading this, one clear example is from Philippians 1, 12 to 14, where Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Look at, this, look at the fruit there. This man is chained in this, in this passage. He is in a Roman apartment, chained to a, to a Roman guard, and not just any guard. This is the Praetorian guard. These are the elite. And, and their shifts probably alternate from six to eight hours. And Paul is chained to this man. What do you think Paul says? What do you, what do you think his, his comments are? What do you think the conversation is when, when he's chained to this guard? Hey, do you know, you heard about Jesus? Do you know about the way? And just a constant speaking of the gospel into these soldiers' lives. I mean, he says it's become known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The gospel is being promulgated and, and put forth. Why? Because of his imprisonment. I'm sure none of us would want to be in prison for the, for the cause of the, of the gospel. But just imagine the power that we have when we are put through difficult situations and God uses those situations for us to be a blessing to others. Each of you in here can probably think about something that you've gone through that was tough, not pleasant. And it might not have been because of your sin or anything like that, but just God working in your life. And you, and you, can't, <laughs> you can't understand when you're going through it, why, God, why is, this, why is this happening? Until in hindsight you see the fruit that is born from what happens. So you see the, 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 the way God uses your situation to glorify himself. And God often uses circumstances in our lives in order for us to bear more fruit for his glory. Even though those circumstances can sometimes be difficult, we know that God's grace is sufficient to comfort and guide us through them. Amen. The third thing that I want us to see this morning is the necessity of the vine. We need this vine. Jesus calls us to abide in him because we cannot bear fruit by ourselves. Verse 4 says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. All of the virtues of 2 Peter 1, 5 through 6, which is our, our, our scriptural reference for this year, our, our verse of the year, all of these, all of these virtues cannot be achieved unless we are actively abiding in Christ. Jesus says in verse 5 of our text that apart from me, you can do nothing. That is to say that we cannot do anything of spiritual significance unless we abide in him. The fruit of the Spirit cannot be produced apart from abiding in him. 
the power and the sustenance that we need to live godly lives cannot be achieved apart from abiding in him. All the roles that we function in can have no redemptive value, no spiritual significance apart from abiding in him. You can't be a good father or a good mother or a good wife or a good husband without abiding in him. That is the, that he is our, our source of power to live out this godly life through this process we call sanctification. You know, I think W.H. Griffith said it best when he said Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. So in light of this, how, how, do, we, how do we do this, church? How do we abide in him? Number one, through the word. We do it through the word. I don't know if you've ever purchased or seen these Lego sets. They come with 50 or 60 different pieces, and that's the small ones. Every time I go to the Target with, with my boys, they see the Lego set. Daddy, I want that one. And it's never the one that's like 12 or 13, maybe 20 pieces. I want the 567-piece Lego set. Let, let, let me get that one. <laughs> and so I don't buy that one because that's, wow, that's a lot. But I'll buy one of them, take it home, open it up, dump the pieces out, <laughs> and sit there for the next hour and 30 minutes trying to figure out how to put the thing together. But I don't do it without looking at the, at the instruction manual. If I don't look at that instruction manual on how to put those pieces together, I can't build this thing. I can't build this toy. Our Christian life isn't a toy. But we can't build the kind of life that God calls us to live apart from his instruction manual, his word. We can't do it. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Paul says that all scripture is useful. It has use for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Our proximity to Christ is tantamount to our proximity to scripture. Whether we hear the word preached or study it privately, we must give priority to it in our lives, in our daily lives, because this is what God uses to transform us as we live out our faith in this life, his word. We abide in Christ through the word. Secondly, we abide in Christ through prayer. Jesus, while on earth, continued with his father, communed with his father regularly. In the Gospels, we see numerous occasions where Jesus went to be alone and pray to his Father. Scripture commands us to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. And also teaches us how to pray. Matthew, 5, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, and we learned about that during Pastor Andrew's series on the Sermon of the Mount, on how to pray. Prayer gives us the opportunity to pour out our hearts before a loving and listening God and receive spiritual support that we need during the difficult times in our lives. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The sacrificial death of Jesus is the only reason why we have this kind of access to God. He was the lamb who was slain, as well as our high priest who intercedes on our behalf. 
speaking to the Father through the name of Jesus is how we gain the grace and strength to live an effective Christian life. But thirdly, we abide through the sacraments, the ordinances. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper keep the person and work of Jesus regularly before us, as Dr. Tom Ashko says. They keep the person and work of Jesus regularly before us. Baptism reminds us that we were crucified with Christ and now we are raised to walk in newness of life. It is an outward symbol of an inward reality as well as true testimony to our union with Christ through the forgiveness of sins. I can't think of a more meaningful portrayal of the gospel than that of baptism. The Lord's Supper gives us greater focus on what Jesus accomplished for us through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. When we observe this ordinance, it also unifies us as the body of Christ, as we're together through faith, and we spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. It's from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. But fourthly, as I conclude, the church, you, this is how we abide in Christ. We need, we need each other. As one body, it is important for us to meet together so that we can encourage, strengthen, and love one another. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 tells us that Christ has given gifts to the church, such as pastors and teachers. Why? to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. Here at Northwest, we have a vision. We want to cultivate a greater love for both God and neighbor. We want to strengthen, deepen, build, and reach. This is the goal, this is the vision of this church. And we do that in community with one another. We need one another. If we abide and continue to put the word of God in our life, pray to God, observe the sacraments and take them seriously, and meet together regularly, if we do these things, and we will mature, bear fruit, and persevere to the end. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, apart from your Son, we can do nothing, God. It is only through Jesus that we have our salvation. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to abide in Jesus. Continue to keep us close to him. We know that he who began a good work in you is able to complete it. Bless and be with this church, God, as we seek to glorify you through what we say, how we live, and what we do. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? A new hymn of the month, As You Go.
As you go, may you show his heart to bless the ones with less, the blind and lost. As you leave, may you be the light of Christ and show our hope is in the cross. May you go in the love of your Father God. May you go in the grace of Christ. May you go in the power of the Spirit now, bringing glory with your life. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's sing that chorus one more time. May you go in the love of your Father God. May you go in the grace of Christ. May you go in the power of the Spirit now to bring him glory with your life. Amen. Hadn't it been good to be here today? Let's pray together. Father, help us to abide in you this week as we go out and bring your witness to those who need it, the lost in this world. Help us as we go from this place. May we be ambassadors for Christ this week in Jesus' name. Amen.